Welcome to the Imagination in Education podcast, produced by a team of teachers and students at LC Press. Our Liverpool-based homemade podcast is food for thought for educators, for students, and for anyone who is interested in using their imagination to make schools places of joy, discovery, and the development of human potential. Please visit www.lcpress.org.uk to learn more about us and our show. The opinions expressed on the podcast are those of our guests and presenters only. Enjoy the show and keep using your imagination. And welcome to the Imagination in Education podcast. And today we have a guest who really should be able to enlighten us about our main preoccupations. Henry Marsh is a teacher, a poet, an orchid connoisseur, and a scholar, and finally a Scot, I think uh, it has to be said. Uh, he's published uh, poetry available in several volumes. He is also the only person I know who I believe did a PhD in imagination. It's difficult to track these people down, but today on the podcast, we found him, the poet Henry Marsh. Welcome to the podcast. Hope the sun is shining in Scotland. And I've, I've read your poetry and I've talked to you about it. And you're a person who's always, even as a teacher, been fascinated by the imagination. But on the podcast, we like to discuss people's own experience of education, the way they got to where they got, shall we say, in an educational journey. Tell me about your, your school. Did it help form your imagination? Did it excite your imagination? No, I'm afraid not. I was completely neutral about school. The only thing was, in my early teens, I started to go to the local public lending library. And before I knew where I was, I was borrowing three times a week and borrowing two or three books at a time. So I read voraciously. Well, I ought to have been, <laughs> well, I ought to have been studying for my hires. What I was doing was reading things like Anna Karenina and Dostoevsky and so on. <laughs> no, I couldn't have cared less what was going on at school but my imagination was fired by reading and, and also to a certain extent by poetry, particularly Shelley and people like that, you know, revolutionary stuff. So my formal education was, was not great. So what I did was I, I worked for a couple of years and then I decided, oh, I want to go to university. I want to study literature. And in the meantime, I mean, one or two important experiences. I got involved in a little discussion group of folk. And one night, we talked all night. And I walked five miles home after that from Dundee to my home in Brotty Ferry. And for some reason or other, I picked up Wordsworth, Tintor Abbey. And it was the most extraordinary experience. I sort of walked between the words. It was totally luminous to me. And suddenly I saw the whole of Wordsworth's career sort of through Tintin Abbey. It, was, it never left me. And uh, as I say, by reading Shelley and so on after that, I became inspired by poetry. And then I met Bill Montgomery, who was one of the Scottish Renaissance poets. And Bill was very encouraging about my work, particularly in my essays and my poetry and so on and so forth. So really he set me up to do uh, literature at university. But when I got to university, I found very much that 
one or two other people, we made our own running. We made our own excursion into the imagination. And already I was pretty, pretty skeptical about what you might call formal education. I, I noticed that, Henry. I mean, as a as a school principal, this is this is tough to hear. You you spent about three seconds on your school, and uh, <laughs> explained at great galloping pace how yeah. uh, Al had done absolutely nothing, and you you were engaging with the subject yourself. What interests me, of course, is a lot of people won't recognize that experience. They they will say that that is unique. I've not felt that. I'm not attracted to literature that way. I'm not. What do you think is the reason that, as a, even as a, as, you know, as, as a teenager, you are sitting there in school going, gosh, this is so tedious, and you're reading Anna Karenina going, God, this is so great. Is that something well, unique to you? Is that because the school was particularly boring? Is it, is it have to do with your family? Is there, is there nobody no. in the school that helped you become like this? No, this was completely aside from my family mm-hmm. because my mother and father's relationships were breaking up, you see. Mm-hmm. So I lived a rather solitary life at that stage, really, one way or another. Do you think it's, that helps the imagination? Do you think that when you look well, back... It certainly, it certainly encouraged me to read. And the other thing was, very importantly, I was had piano lessons from when I was quite small. By that time, I was pretty proficient, really. And I had a beloved music teacher who was really wonderful and encouraged me to play things far beyond, you know, the grades that I'd taken and so on. Then I was, I was left a pile of music by, by some kind of old relative. And in that was a book of Chopin Nocturnes. And I remember trying to play the, the, the E-flat nocturne. And I was just overwhelmed with the beauty of the sonorities. And, and that's, that, was, that was a seminal moment as well, as well as Wordsworth, just hearing the E-flat nocturne as it were, and trying to play it for the first time. That was, that was a wonderful moment, really. This is sort of raw humanity, really. I mean, you, you, you experienced this in a sense as an artist. Your, your soul responded to something, something inside yes. you stirred. It was yes. entirely, in a sense, serendipitous. Tell me a little bit more about this piano teacher. You, you obviously loved her. What, what is it about a great piano teacher? What was it about her that was just so marvelous? She was just a lovely person, and she played beautifully, and she had a grand piano in her sitting room. So it was a great privilege to be able to sit at this <laughs> grand piano and sort of play. Just that's just simple as that. I've suffered from tinnitus for many years, so I, after practicing about three hours a day on piano, I gave it all up all of a sudden. Do you and regret now, that? Well, my fingers won't play anymore mm-hmm. because they're they're too old and they've lost their kind of motor skills for that for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I I've mean, got a friend with a grand piano, and I sometimes sort of strum my way through. A bit of Chopin on that. <laughs> it's not fit for public consumption. We went to South Uist, my wife and I, my first wife, on holiday. And in South Uist, we were encouraged to visit the local bard, Donald MacDonald of Southlock Boysdale. And we did that. And he lived in more or less a black house. 
Um, Mark Hewitt had gable chimneys by that point, but it was the same structure, thatched roof and so on and so forth. Uh, and a range, you know, where Roger is cooking and stuff like that. And Jackie literally sat at his feet and he was working on a poem about Camilla Parker Bowles, believe it or not. <laughs> He'd come across an article in the Sunday Post, which is a great sort of northeast institution. <laughs> and he decided it was a bit nippy. Well, I cannot imagine anything in the Thompson publications being nippy about the royal family. But anyway, that's what he decided. And so he decided he'd write a poem in praise of Camilla. And he'd worked on a translation of this into English. And my wife helped him with this and it went back and forwards between Edinburgh and, and South Loch Boysdale until they were satisfied that they got a reasonable translation. And then this was sent to the prince. A few months later, they got a letter signed by some aquarium or something like that. And this was framed and sent round the islands <laughs> and from South Eust to Barra to North Eust to, to Lewis and so on right to the butt of Lewis. Um, and so it went all over the islands in, in this framed edition. Those islands and, and the role of the Baird and the role of poetry yes. in, in an oral society is, 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 is in a way not what what you experienced as a poet, because after your, your studies, you became a teacher. You yeah. were a poet that had to teach, uh, you know, higher and A-level syllabuses. Uh, tell, tell me this, um, does a good teacher need an imagination or is an imagination an obstacle? Well, I began to see my job as a teacher of English as someone who was trying to lift children into the experience of the other of the book of the poem because it's possible to learn about texts and you get marks for learning about texts and churning it all out in the end it's a complete travesty it's nothing to do with poetry or anything else i mean there's a lot of memory work involved in other things as well you know like sciences or what have you and the distinctive advantage of getting children to read and use their imaginations is far more important than just you know, remembering bits and pieces about Tintin Abbey or whatever it happens to be. Now, soon after we met the bard, he, he, he came to see us in Edinburgh. Uh, and then soon after that, he died. And I sat down to write a letter of condolence to his sister. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I can't write a letter to a bard. Um, so I wrote a poem, and that was like the floodgates opening. I've just written continuously ever since, and wow. I've written since then. So there was something there <laughs> that's waiting for expression. You know. There was something there. Where does it come from, Henry? Where does, you know, the, the ancients spoke of muses, and I, I suppose Dr. Freud would have a hell of a lot to say about that, that artistic creation, but... That, that urge, that particular modality of, of poetry, for you or just generally, where does that come from? What is that? Well, it puts you in touch, for example, with the natural world. Yep. And that is own value. The value, as it were, of the world begins to manifest itself and it rewards 
that particular kind of imaginative attention. So that's self-rewarding. And the more you do it, the more rewarding it becomes. Is it a kind of paying attention? Is it, is yes, it a it's a kind of mode of attention. Yeah. And in that sense, your experience as a poet is that when you pay that attention, that attention is rewarded, not, not just by the production of a poet, poem, okay. by poetry. The poetry is incidental. It is that, it's that attentiveness that, that lifts you. You experience yeah. that as a, how, how would I describe that? Is that a spiritual reward? Is that a, a, an emotional reward? What, what, you know, I'm not a poet. Well, I mean, it sounds a bit pretentious, but I think probably it's a kind of spiritual reward, really. Yeah. Um, the exhilaration of being put in touch with the, what's beautiful. As I say, it, it feeds itself, you know. Henry, would you, uh, you favour us? We're, we're, uh, we're in the middle of the podcast. Would you read some poetry for us before yes, we I'll continue do our conversation? Yes, uh, okay. Normally we have a musical interlude. Poetry, okay. music, uh, is, is, is it any different? I don't think so. So we're, we're going to have a little poetic uh, interlude. Uh, Henry Marsh, ladies and gentlemen, reading his poetry. I've, uh, at one stage I began to write on historical themes. And I've been writing on historical themes for about 10 years now. What I'm about to read gives an example of how poetry is kind of multifaceted, that it gives you so many complex ideas at the same time as a were. This is a, an extract from uh, the book on, on Gedman's Daughter, the Gedman's Daughter being um, Mary, Queen of Scots. And uh, she was brought to Faringhay Castle um, before her execution. And uh, this is on the, the, the night of her execution, before her execution in the morning. They brought her in September. She watched the mists drift trees along slow horizons, lost herself in October's amber afternoons, its bittersweet deceptions, saw parables in light and water, the abyss descend, beyond the edge of comforting reflections. Each dusk drew her further into the dark. Cold passed like spirit through the stone, settled in more vulnerable bone, took shapes and sleep that stretched into the gestures of the proximate dead. Waking, she itself free on the gold and scarlet of winter mornings, foundering in the lapse to a grey day. Vowed on her knees, that she read that prophetic gesture as she breathed the ash of penitence to a cold flame and reached her joy. Held tight in that knot of circumstance, her dignity defiant, she wrested her meaning from a stubborn February dawn. That endless fleeting night, elusive as a scent of flowers, she touched on moments of serenity, drifted in Carver's silver labyrinth, Oh, good Jesus, oh, sweet Jesus. And the edge falls between word and word as jackdaws racket in spare chestnuts and hands are drenched that help her hold her crucifix. It falls between night and night as a body dances its mandatory fingers. 
as a river fills with light, it falls, as kites fought and the wind swoop at goblets on the midden. Witnesses grip their souls as a white cropped head continues to mouth unintelligible mysteries. That covers so much of what I wanted to say about the execution. I published a, a recent volume on the death of my first wife, who died four or five years ago. It's a collection of family poems, really. January morning. As a traveller excited by a strange land, returns to his familiar world, now made mysterious by his liberation, I pass through the gate of awaking to the light of a dawn, perhaps some dream hovering out of sleep, that fires the embers of a cloud cave roof, sets black sticks of trees searching into powder blue and gold, brings the bronze of the hill's shoulder, the masterly studies and puddles dancing to the eye. The moon is straining its pale ear to catch the first song of a distant missile thrush. Oh, the words, the words. You'd be embarrassed if I said, I find you there. But being familiar with this threshold, you can follow to the brink and catch the wordless benediction in the morning. Then what is shared can speak for us. Of your collections of poetry, that's the last one you published. Yes, that's right. And having, having read a fair bit of your poetry, I wouldn't describe myself as an expert in it. In some respects, that's your most personal. Yes, that's right. Yes. That's the only time I've written personally, as it were. Rather than using your imagination in history or using your observation of the natural world, you there were, you were writing poetry about, the, I guess, the drama of your own life. You know, exploring the idea of someone dying, what on earth that would be like, you know. Prognosis, for example. Mm -hmm. We wake into a pale morning. Waves of sorrow, you say. I feel waves of sorrow to leave for your love. I hold her hand to my heart. I remember emigrants on a pier. There will be a moment beyond the reach of voices of farewells, the sea loch is steely. In a grainy photograph, a granny stands by her family, a young girl at her side. She lives her widowhood, a raven dress proclaims it. Past or future, whatever her direction, all she sees is departure, severance at the root. No compass leads from absence. I tell myself to rehearse your going is to squander. The mind circles, lacks strength to break free from this black hole. Then love lifts with freedom and cherishing. I have to say, I have read that, not as well as you read it. it. It just reminds me again that poetry has to be, has to be spoken. It is a sound, and, it, mm. it, and it's your voice. Henry, what can schools do to make more people like you?
You know, obviously in your case, it was school was only an obstacle to becoming you uh, is what you're describing. But well, it was not so much an obstacle; it was just completely neutral. It just yeah. well, could how could we transform, or how how could schools become non-neutral about developing and inspiring young people to to well, have this experience of attentiveness that you've described? I mean, for a start, by not insisting that children write about experiences they haven't had in literature. I mean, it's, it's nonsense, you know. That's the whole secret of English, isn't it? You try to lift them into the world of the book. And if they're not lifted into the world of the book, how can they conceivably write you know, sense about what it is they've experienced? So that's the first thing. Um, and that takes a kind of passion. And also there's a collective thing. You know, once you've got a class going, you know, over a year or something like that, You've got a good opportunity, in spite of the curriculum, just to get on with it. You know, the school where I taught, we had a rather good system because we did hires and A-levels. So the first year six, the able people did hires by the way, as it were, without any special tuition. Mm -hmm. And then the following year, they they finished with with an A-level. And that gave us a sort of free year in the lower six. And in that year, we, we, we packed what we call the Art Foundation course. You know, someone from the art department, music, history, English, and so on. And into that, we packed things which are not, which are extracurricular. You know, we were, we were doing sort of medieval poetry, for goodness sake. We were reading Robert Henderson, or so forth. All these things that you never have time to read if you sort of stick to the curriculum. And we read Karl Marx and Nietzsche, and goodness knows all what. And we did this in the year somehow or other. And they listened to great music and, you know, Beethoven string quartets and so on and so forth. And that's what they remember in the street if you come across them. They remember the Arts Foundation course because it was significant. And it took them into that imaginative world, which otherwise they weren't touching, you know, the formal education. So we- uh, Henry, from, from your mouth straight to the ears of, I guess in Scotland it would be Mr. Sweeney, but for us who are exiled here below the border, we have, we have to make such appeals to a man called Gavin Williamson. You can imagine, I, 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 don't, I don't know, I don't know if he has a, a favourite poem. Poetry, Henry, is, we are told, is becoming more popular, that more of it is being sold, more of it is being listened to. You yourself are involved in the recitation or the performance of poetry along with your fellow poets. Why do you think that might be? If it is becoming more popular, what is it about our life now that makes poetry more appealing? (laughs) I mean, what do you mean by now? Do you you mean since lockdown or whatever? No, I I mean, um, you know, these may just be flippant and anecdotal headlines in the newspaper. But but what one hears that more poetry is being published, more poetry is being bought, more poetry is being read, more poetry is being, if I can use the word, performed or recited, uh, even before lockdown. What do you think people are looking for there? What, what is the, what's the attraction of this stuff? Well, perhaps they're not so crushed by the alienation that comes from work. In other words, they can restore themselves to themselves more readily now. I mean, if you worked down a mine before, you were destroyed by the experience. 
you know, you just worked endlessly, or you you worked as a housemaid or something. It was just kind of absolutely endless. You just didn't have the opportunity to explore things like that. But I think now, now you do, and it touches people's native wit, and you know, if they can actually begin to find expression for it, you know, they can do that now. I think without inhibition. If uh, if a child was, uh, and there will be, if 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 a person in 14, 15 years old was listening to this and quite rightly, we know how awful some of these uh, GCSE syllabus poems are and how completely put off poetry a lot of children are by the poetry they're made to read. Do you have a suggestion for a kid that's in a sense saying, look, I, I I don't even know where to start. Give me a poet, give me a poem, give me something that is accessible that I can grasp and follow in terms of my vocabulary, in terms of my language, and that I can begin with. What is the starter poem? Well, I mean, you can begin with Ted Hughes' animal poems, for example. You know, that'll invite some kind of identification, because identification is the first imaginative step, and then your cognitive faculties can follow that and begin to sort of come to terms with it and understand it, you know. So that's a good... I mean, even something as simple as my family and other animals is a great turn-on for some kids, you know, the romance of it all and the, the contact with the natural world. and so There's a kind of craving for the natural world, for goodness sake. I mean, see how a child responds to seeing a caterpillar or a frog. It's all there. They're curious. They want to touch. They want to see how it works and so on and so forth. So we've just got to exploit that only in the context of the words, you know, to make words relevant. Henry, you've uh, definitely inspired us. You've given us a lot of beautiful poetry and a lot to think about. And please keep paying attention and keep giving us these poems. And we will try to follow your advice and not only teach the syllabus. (laughs) Henry Marsh, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast and we thank you for listening. More information and material can be found on www.lcpress.org.uk. If you have an idea for a podcast or would like to contribute to the show, why not email us at editor at lcpress.org.uk. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lcpress and imagination in education. See you next time.